Our scripture today will be Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and kept at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. All right. Thanks, Michael. Um, if you guys have ever tried to track any of your habits, like uh, how much you um, spend time online or how much you're on your phone, uh, or maybe you track your spending at, at some point, then you've probably been a little bit surprised at, at, at what you're spending money on. You know, you get that report back and you spent that much on coffee or on food or, or whatever it is. Um, but usually when we track ourselves, it ends up being a bit more than we think it would be, right? Like, for example, if I were to ask you, you know, maybe how much, how much time do you spend watching TV a week? And you might think, you know, maybe an hour, two tops. You know, but the national average is four hours, and so for, for a lot of us, we might watch twice as much TV as we think, and we're thinking we just watch an hour, maybe two a week, but then the reality would show us that we watch like close to 30 hours a week. And so generally, when we can get tracked, we, we, we're kind of surprised at how much we're, we're doing one thing or the other. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if there was some kind of technology that could track your complaining? <laughs> wouldn't that be terrible, Right. Um, and, and we could all probably agree, like all of us would say, yeah, you know, I complain here and there. I complain from time to time. But I bet if there was some kind of technology that could tell us how much we actually complain, we would be shocked, right? We're like, I wasn't even complaining there. I was just kind of saying, right? Um, that, that's my excuse. When, like, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. <laughs> and if you say that, it's not a complaint, no matter what follows. Um, but, but look, for, for some of us complaining, it, it can become almost second nature to us, right? It's almost how we make conversation about what's going on. It's how we relate to people. It's just kind of how we, we talk. Um, but there is more to our complaining than we probably think. Jesus said, uh, excuse me, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when we're complaining, there is light that's being shed on our hearts. 
And so there's more to it than just on the surface that we're just making a complaint. So, so today I want to consider how Israel complained and what it meant for them and, and perhaps how we can be able to see ourselves in Israel here. So I want to, talk, I want to consider three things about complaining today. The, the first is that complaining is common. The second is that complaining is testing the Lord. Uh, and the third thing I want to talk about, a cure to complaining. So first, complaining is common. So in our text today, the people are complaining in verse 2. They're quarreling with Moses to give them water. Verse 3, they're grumbling against Moses for bringing them to the wilderness just to die of thirst. And so the words going back and forth are quarreling and grumbling. And just so you know, I'm kind of putting that together with complaining. So we're talking about quarreling and grumbling. I'm talking about complaining. So the people of Israel are unhappy. And they seem to be unhappy for a legitimate reason. They don't have water, Right? Water can come in handy from time to time. They don't, they don't want a, a swimming pool, a fancy car. They just don't want to die of thirst, right? Is that too much to ask? Seems reasonable. But we usually don't make up stuff to complain about. Usually, we don't make up stuff to complain about. Probably 100% of the time, at least in our own minds, we think our complaint is legitimate and reasonable and normal. And we live in a fallen world that is just out of whack. Like things often don't go the right way. Things go wrong. People are annoying. And so every day is delivered up to us plenty to complain about. And if you're under any kind of authority, and all of us are under some kind of authority, you're going to be prone to complain. Even if the authority you're under is pretty good, they're still not going to be perfect. And then bad leadership is bad leadership. And so there's lots. So there's going to be ample opportunities for us to complain. And, and if you're in leadership of any kind, then you should know the price of leadership is fielding complaints. That's what you're in the business of doing. Employees will complain about their employers. Children will complain about their parents. And wives will complain about their husbands. And look, the, the book of Proverbs speaks about this. Uh, Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It is better, 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman, a continual dripping on a rainy day, and a quarrelsome wife or alike. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Y'all are thinking, Kevin, you're pretty bold right now, man. <laughs> There's a line to cross, and I'm pretty sure you crossed it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, some of you might think, hey, that's unfair, because what about the husband? Like, uh, like, the husband might be the biggest complainer ever, right? And so this seems kind of unfair. But, but look, here's, here's a little bit of what we're seeing here. And like, when there is complaints, it goes towards authority, right? And, and the biblical design in the home is for the husband to have authority over the, over the wife. Whether you like it or not, it's just what the Bible teaches, Ephesians 5 and other places, right? And so generally, complaints drift towards authority. And look, there might be a house that's out of order to where, to where even the husband and wife might believe what Ephesians 5 teaches about authority in the home and all that. But for all practical purposes, the wife might be functioning as the head of the home, and then the, the husband is complaining a lot. The, the point is, is that, is that complaints go to the one in authority. And one thing to consider when we think about all this is that it makes people miserable. If wives want to make their husband miserable, then, then feel free to complain with no filter. <laughs> and as long as there's a legitimate complaint, a legitimate problem, then complain all you want. 
And, and certainly, miserable, uh, men can do the same thing. Men make their wives miserable with complaining. We shouldn't think that it's just one, not the other. No doubt, us men and us husbands can complain. But here's the thing. Anyone under any kind of authority is prone to complain towards that authority. And so we have to be careful not to complain because you probably complain way more way more than you realize that you complain. And in your complaining, all of us are making people miserable with our complaining. And one other thing we need to know about complaining, one is that we do it a lot more than we realize. The other thing we might not realize about complaining is that it is terribly offensive to God. And that brings me to my second point, And here's why it's offensive to God. Complaining is testing the Lord. Seems like a stretch. Let's see if we can connect those two. So look at verse 2 in chapter 17. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses is connecting their quarrel with him, their complaining, with testing the Lord. Look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So, so they came to a place that seems to have no water and they are thirsty. They complain and quarrel with Moses about it. But here we see Moses describe it to them as having tested the Lord by asking, is the Lord among us or not? Isn't that an interesting thread to follow what's happening here? From, so, so here's what we have. They were complaining, and that complaining is equated to testing the Lord. And it's testing the Lord because their complaining is causing them to ask this, is the Lord among us or not? Complaining, testing the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? That is the question on the table for the people of Israel. Is the Lord among us or not? And look, if you're reading through Exodus with us, not a great question to ask, right? So, so they're in Egypt, and they are miraculously delivered. There are these ten plagues, right? And so we're, we're Pharaoh, this, this global huge power, nobody's better than Pharaoh. He, doesn't, he not only lets them go, but they basically plunder the Egyptians. We didn't cover this a few weeks ago, but they're basically paying them, giving them their gold to leave. Then they get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts, and they walk through it on dry ground. It's a pretty neat trick, right? I mean, they walk through it on dry ground, and then they're in the desert. They're in the wilderness. How do you feed a million-plus people every day? Just have bread come out, of the, come, come out of nowhere, bread from heaven, manna, every day, a million-plus fed. And they say, where's God? It's just like, are you not seeing what's happening here? He is revealing himself over and over to them. But for the Israelites, God for the Israelites, God has done enough. He is obviously with, with them, and they have come to a bump in the road. And this is a legitimate problem. There's no water. There seems to be a lack of water, and that problem seems to undo all the work that God has done for them up till now. And can't you relate to that? Like 
God has done enough. He's revealed who he is. He's done all these things. We have the scriptures. We have the, the prophetic word, the resurrection of Christ. We have all these things. We have just the creation itself that screams there is a God. And then you're running late one day. Lost track of time. Get in the car. You're taking off. Hit every red light. And then some clown stops at a yellow light, right? And you think, there's no God. This, this could not happen. Well, maybe you don't go that far. But maybe you think God is passive. He doesn't care about like the, the details and intricacies of my life. I might as well not even pray because the Lord doesn't really care or listen anyway. And something happens. Maybe you have a, a prayer request that's gone unanswered. And it's not a bad prayer request. It is a God-honoring, God-exalting prayer request that just, it only makes sense for God to, to respond in the affirmative. And it just goes, it, it feels ignored. And you wonder, is he, is he with us or not? Does he care or does he not care? Something terrible happens to you or someone you love or know. And you just begin to question the whole thing. And again, here, here's the thread. A legitimate problem, and that legitimate problem is not being resolved. That leads to complaining, which becomes a form of testing the Lord because it seems like God has abandoned you. Now, keeping that idea in mind, turn to Luke chapter 3. So in Luke chapter 3 is when Jesus is, is baptized. And, and God says something when Jesus is baptized. So Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with who I am well, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized, and a voice from heaven says this, you are my beloved son. Now, while his hair was probably still wet from the baptism, the Spirit of God leads him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I want us to consider the third temptation in Luke chapter 4. So flip over to Luke chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Luke chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, we read this. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered them, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you see what's going on here? In Luke 3, God the Father says this, You are my beloved son. Luke chapter 4, the devil speaks, and what does he say? If, if you are the son of God. So the devil is tempting Jesus to doubt what God has said, to make Jesus wonder, am I really the son of God? So that Jesus would put God to the test, make God prove himself, 
throw yourself down from this high point, and if you're the son of God, you're going to get caught by the angels. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be validating if that happened? And Jesus responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, 16, that says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You remember where Massa is? Exodus 17. So the devil is tempting Jesus to, to, to test God, and Jesus goes to our text today, really, Exodus 17, by quoting Deuteronomy 6, which is addressing that. And it's at Massa where, where, where the, the people of God are testing the Lord to make God prove himself. So that's where Jesus goes to. Deuteronomy 6 is about Exodus 17, which is about testing the Lord. So what do we learn from this? Well, if we, if we begin to peel back the layers of our complaining, we, we're probably going to find something like this. Some kind of disappointment that is all interwoven with unbelief, right? Disappointment interwoven with some kind of unbelief. And a desire in that, with that disappointment and unbelief, a desire begins to bubble up. God needs to show himself here. He needs to come through for me. Or he needs to prove himself. And when we want God to prove himself, do you know what we're saying? When we want God to prove himself, you know what we're saying? He has not done enough. I need more. God, you need to do something else to validate yourself to me. I've got a problem that you need to take care of. And if you expect me to believe, to walk in your ways, then you got to come through for me here. And look, the problem just jumps out as you read through Exodus. How could they ask that? He brought them miraculously out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He's feeding a million plus daily. And they say, prove yourself. <laughs> Come on. He's already done enough. And he's done enough for us too. He created the world and everything in it. It spins incredibly predictably, giving us night and day. It tilts incredibly predictably, giving us seasons. And more than that, not just that there's a God, that this God is Jesus because of his life, death, and most importantly, his resurrection. So he has done all that he needs to do to prove himself to us. He has done enough. He's promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so we don't need to come up with some kind of personalized test that God needs to pass to validate ourselves. We just need to embrace what he has already done. And not allow our disappointments, as significant as they might be, to become the test which God has to validate himself to us. Kidding me? God has to pass our little test we're going to make for him? Now, let me, let, let me move to the third point with a proposal for a cure to complaining. My third point is a cure to complaining. Uh, first, I want to emphasize two things again. One, we probably complain a lot more than we realize. And two, complaining is a lot bigger of a deal than we realize because it reveals what we really think about God. And the Israelites here are laser focused on what God has not done. There's no water. They're, they have a water problem. He, he delivered them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea, feeds a million plus every day with manna, but he has not solved this water problem yet. 
And more than that, there's not a clear path to this problem getting solved. They're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. Now, it's hard for us to blame them because we would just join the chorus of complaining, right? I mean, I, I don't know if any of us think, no, I wouldn't have complained. I would have been cool with no water. Like, we probably would have been right there with them. It's a legitimate complaint. Can't live without water, right? They need water. So what should they have done? They didn't have water. They need, it's a legitimate complaint. Why can't they complain? They need water. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. What should they have done? What should we do when we have legitimate unresolved problems? Significant things that are not good, that are not becoming resolved. And the knee jerk is to just complain. We just do that instinctively. Okay, I shouldn't complain. What should I do instead? All right, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when you read that, that verse, it can be frustrating because you see, don't be anxious as a command. And you think, yeah, would love to find the off switch on that, right? Would love to just not do that. So for a lot of us who think, do not be anxious, it doesn't feel like a command we can follow because anxiety feels like something we're stuck in and it doesn't feel as much as a choice. But, but I think the rest of that verse tells us how to not be anxious. It's with prayer and thanksgiving, asking God for what you lack and thanking God for all that he has done. And what is the result of that according to that verse? The peace of God that surpasses understanding. Or to put it another way, freedom from anxiety. So, so what might the peace of God that surpasses all understanding look like? It might look like someone being at peace without water. <laughs> Something they legitimately need. And being at peace still with no clear path to water, being at peace. And look, this doesn't mean, hey, ignore the water problem. Pretend it's not there. It's not saying that. And usually, if, if anyone is rebuked about complaining, it's just like, hey, I'm just the only one that, that doesn't have my head in the ground, right? This is, there's a problem here. I'm just acknowledging it. There's something different here of making a request to God for what you lack and being thankful for what you do have. And we are probably way more prone to complain than to prayer, than to pray and to give thanks. I mean, can anyone argue with that, right? We are way more prone to complain than to pray and to give thanks for what we do have. And maybe that is why we're all so anxious all the time. We should probably take Martin Luther's advice. He said, pray and let God worry, right? Let me close by pointing out one more thing that's significant in this text. The people were complaining, and they were testing the Lord. God had done more than enough. He, he did not need to prove himself at all to the Israelites here. And the Israelites at no point here did they apologize for their complaining or, or say, you know, actually, sorry, you've done a lot. We probably got ahead of ourselves. So they didn't, they didn't apologize for their complaining. And what did God do to them? Gave them water from a rock, out of nowhere. He did it again. He continues 
to show the stubborn, ungrateful people kindness and mercy. And y'all, is that not good news for us? A stubborn people prone to complain, not be thankful? This is good news. And if you were to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, you're, you're going to learn something about this rock. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says this, They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Water from a rock to an undeserving people. Grace and mercy from Jesus to an undeserving people. This is our God, the one who created the world and everything in it. He has done everything that is necessary that you might know him and experience his grace and mercy, which is not deserved, rather than his judgment and wrath, which is deserved. And so let me close out saying this. If you are not a Christian or not sure if you are a Christian, I want to read Jesus's words to you from John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you are a Christian prone to complaining, ungratefulness, and anxiety, let me read you the words of Jesus from John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why wouldn't you come to Jesus? He is kind to the complaining and to the ungrateful. He's proven himself already at the cross and with his resurrection. So why wouldn't you come to him and drink deeply from his grace and mercy? He is kind to the complaining and the ungrateful, and that is really good news for us. Let's pray. Father, we see here the people of Israel as you've proven yourself over and over to them, and yet they complain, and you show them grace and mercy. And we are, see ourselves in this, that you have proven yourself over and over to us, and we find a bump in the road, significant problems, significant issues that disorient us, and they cause us to believe you have not done enough, but you have we see it in the work of your son in his life, death, and resurrection. And would you help us to believe? Would you help us to trust? Would you help us to be a grateful people who make our requests known to you because you are supply us with your kindness, grace, and mercy over and over again. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.